Yeah, so you know we're on the series of More Than Enough. It's uh, from a Dallas Willard book called A Life Without Lack. And so a lot of it's not necessarily original thoughts, but hopefully there's an original expression and that Louise and I are owning the space. But this morning we are going to be talking about Hasatan, and uh, he is the destroyer of good, and I'm going to get into that in a moment. But it's all about a journey through Psalm 23, because this journey through Psalm 23 is about this good shepherd where we have no lack, we lack for nothing, we have more than enough, and it's really about a journey through life. It's like watching the Springboks last night. You think you've got enough, and then all of a sudden, there's not enough, but then there is enough at the end of the day. Anyway, just, there was, yeah, yeah, just <laughs> a sidetrack. But let's, let's close our eyes and focus on Jesus, not on the rugby. And won't you play that video, please? Nice and loud. Jehovah is my shepherd. I will lack nothing. In grassy pastures he makes me lie down. He leads me to well-watered resting places. He refreshes me. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for the sake of his name. Though I walk in the valley of deep shadow, I fear no harm. You are with me. Your rod and your staff reassure me. You prepare a table for me before my enemies. You refresh my head with oil. My cup is well filled. Surely goodness and loyal love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of Jehovah for all my days. expression of Psalm 23, isn't it? So what we've, I want to just rehash where we've been. This is the fourth part of the series. Is We've got spiritual forces. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers in the heavenly realms. And these spiritual forces bring about ideas and thoughts and imagine, uh, images and all kinds of stuff into our headspace, into our minds. And in this process, what it does is it invokes feelings and then it causes us to act out in a certain way. It impacts our will, and we start to choose different things in different ways. And so when we place our minds on God, and we put God in that place and put God before us, what happens is the reality of God comes into our lives, and it makes it possible to live a life of more than enough. And in this whole process is when we start to put the things that Jesus embodied, what Jesus taught, in place of what the world system and all of those ideas and thoughts and images are put into our lives— we start to think rightly about who God is. And in that place, we start to navigate a life despite the circumstances that we might find ourselves in. And so when we start to think about God rightly and we retain those thoughts, then this is the place where we live in the, limit, in the limitless sufficiency of who God is. And God is a good God. In fact, like Louise said, the word tov, 
God, the essence of God is good. So yes, it's an attribute of who God is. We can be good. But ultimately, God, every essence of him is good. And one of the things that I spoke about last week was actually he created this universe. He created this world, and he said it was good seven times. When he created humanity, he said it was very good. And I described why we are valuable to God. Why? Because we are infused by God's spirit. We are made in his image. But every single one of us unique. Every single person that has ever lived has got a different fingerprint. There's a uniqueness, but we all within our uniqueness fulfill the purpose that God has for humanity across this world today. And what is it? It's all of what Sherry spoke of just now. It's actually doing the good works that God has prepared in advance for you to do. So we come in as God's good creation, and we add to the good that God has already created as we move and as we have our being. And it's, we've got to find the only place that we find this energy, this power, is through the Holy Spirit that energizes us to be able to fulfill all of what God has called us to. Now, I know that most people believe this life is impossible. This life without lack is impossible to live. Because when we live, when we look at our world today, there's clearly a lot of lack. I mean, stage six, six ESCOM load shedding. There's a lot of pain in this world. And so I know a lot of people would say, well, let's just block it out and pretend. You know, as Christians, let's just pretend that everything's okay. Because that's the easiest way to do it. But I would suggest that maybe it's not about pretense, but it's about understanding. Now, what are you saying, Gary? What do we, what do we need to understand? Well, I don't know if you ever watched the movie uh, Sixth Sense. Who hasn't seen the movie Sixth Sense? Okay, it's a really good movie to watch. I'm not going to be a spoiler for you, but the whole movie, you, for those who've watched it, will know that you, you, you see this particular um, plot unfold, and you get to the movie, and you realize that all of what you watched, you now have to replay in your mind because actually it wasn't what you thought it was. Just a brilliant um, you know, cinematography, not cinematography, but a brilliant film movie making in terms of the director. Not too different, I would think, was the road to Emmaus for those two disciples. Jesus is dead. Everything they thought Jesus would be has now disappeared. And they're walking and talking with this individual, and Jesus starts to teach them and starts to put all the pieces of the puzzle into, into place. And it says their hearts burned within them. Why? Because they started to see the big picture. They started to see how they fitted into this grand scheme of God. Because most often what we do is we look at a tapestry from the back instead of the front. And often I know we're all confused and we lack understanding about what God wants in, of us in this world. And we look at the back of this tapestry and we say, it is such a mess. It can't actually picture anything. But God, the good God, is on the move. And he's got a good creation that he's asked us to participate in to bring good into this world. So, if we live under this world that is in care of a good God with this unlimited power, and he intends only good for this creation, then the question is, is why then is there so much evil? Why is there so much wickedness that we find in our world today? You see, in the context of what I've just said, in terms of the viewers of this particular uh, film, all those disciples on the road to Emmaus, what they needed was the reveal. What we need is the reveal of who Jesus is and what he's done, and also of the opponent that we have in the adversary, and his name is Satan. Because if we don't understand what, is up, what we're up against, that we are born into a war, which Bron Barlow um, coined, some, I think, sometime last year, then what we do is we are, we, there's this incoherent inco understanding of what's going on and the narrative in which God wants to take us on. I'm sure those disciples went, oh, that's what Moses did. Oh, that's what that psalm means. Oh, 
Ezekiel, Isaiah, Daniel. Okay, now I start to see the bigger picture. And I'm trusting this morning that I put another piece of the puzzle into that process in terms of what God wants to do in and through us. So why is there so much evil in this world? Well, I know I love C.S. Lewis. And when he was asked, well, why have you given humanity free will? Because we as human beings get blamed for a lot of it, don't we? So because of free will, it makes evil possible. But it's also the only thing that makes possible any love and goodness and joy worth living. What is that really saying? What's that saying is, is that we are not robots. We're not clones. Where God says, Gary, this is what you do and you need to love me. And if you don't love me, this is what's you know, programmed to love. No, God has made us in such a way, and it includes other spiritual beings, to choose to love him and choose to do what he's asked us to do. And when we choose that, we live a life without lack. We live with a life that is more than enough. And we live with the shepherds, the good shepherd over us. So, as I said, many people blame humanity because of that evil. But actually, the wickedness in our world today can't really be born by humanity alone. There is this other character and this other creature, and his name is Satan, or is actually, the Hebrew says Hasatan. It's actually not a noun. It's actually an adjective of he is our adversary. He is the one who comes against us. He is our enemy. And all of what Satan does is he, he takes those thoughts. He comes through ideas and images and belief systems, and he comes into our minds, and he lies. He's called the father of lies. And he dominates our thinking, and then we start to act out because our hearts get filled with that, and the actions are then motivated by those thoughts, those ideas, and those images. Many don't believe in a spiritual world. In fact, they don't even believe in Satan. Actually, I, I remember some years ago, um, there was an individual, and I won't mention his name, who was kind of a, a total kind of, is it reprobate, who just you know, drank it up, slept around, whatever the case was, and he was in one of his drunken stupors, and he was watching TV one night. And actually what came up was somebody basically talking about, what's that guy who used to go into those things and speak about some, what do they call him? John, someone other. I can't even remember his name. It's only in my notes, so I can't remember the details. But what's that guy who used to come on TV, and people used to come into his studio, and then he would tell of the people that they've lost, and they're speaking to him. And what was his name? John, someone other. But anyway, this guy was in his drunken stupor watching the show, and he, he realized that actually this is evil, and if evil is this, so does God, and he gave his life as a result of it. And so there is a spiritual world out there, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, and that brings us understanding of the adversary that we do have in terms of this approach. And so Paul in 2 Corinthians says, In order that Satan may not outwit us, for we should not be aware or ignorant, some of the, the translations say, of his schemes, and what he wants to do in our lives. Now, we don't worship Satan. But if we don't understand and have knowledge about who he is and his ways and what he's, about, what he's trying to do, then we're not prepared for it, and then we get surprised by it, and then we blame the good God who actually wants goodness in our world rather than actually worshiping the true God and blaming the punk called Hasatan. So let's have a look at um, the Bible Project I was going to actually preach on it, but I think they do such an amazing job in a few minutes to describe Satan and his demons and their works and effects. So thanks, Ray. So we've been learning about spiritual beings in the Bible, and I still have a lot of questions about the bad ones. Well, great. Let's talk about the Satan and demons in the story of the Bible. So let's start in the beginning. 
In Genesis 1, God creates a beautiful, ordered reality out of darkness and disorder so that life can flourish. He appoints humans as his representatives to rule over all of it, and seven times God calls it good. Yeah, I experience that kind of goodness often in the world, in things like beauty and truth, love and generosity. But in Genesis 3, we meet a creature who's in a state of rebellion against his creator. We're not told yet why or how he rebels, but he's on a mission to ruin God's good world for other creatures. This thing is trouble. Yeah, this creature is the Bible's first portrait of evil. It distorts what God has purposed for good, ruining and dragging creation back into darkness and disorder. So the humans join the spiritual rebel, which leads them back into chaos and death. And from this point on, the human rebellion is interwoven with a spiritual rebellion. And the biblical story shows how this happens over and over again. Okay, but wait, we're getting all this from a slithering snake? Well, there are clues in the story that it's more than just a snake. Remember, Eden is a high place where the earth and its creatures overlap with heaven and its creatures. So the snake could be a spiritual being. Well, Genesis 3 points in that direction, and then later biblical authors fill in the picture. Like when the prophet Isaiah has a vision of God's heavenly throne room, he's surrounded and being praised by the spiritual beings. Yeah, these are the cherubim around God's throne. But when Isaiah sees these creatures, he describes them as seraphim, which in Hebrew means snake. Ah, so the snake is like a former staff member in God's throne room. So why is he talking to the humans? Well, the prophet Ezekiel understood this figure as a spiritual rebel who didn't want to live under God's wisdom and authority. He wanted to be God. All right. That's the same temptation the snake puts before Adam and Eve. Exactly. He says they could rule the world like God, but by their own wisdom. So they're all kicked out of the garden. Yeah, God says this rebel will now crawl on its belly. Where does it go after this? Well, the biblical authors offer subtle clues where this being is at work behind the scenes, animating division and hatred between humans. They also use a variety of images to describe this being. It's a snake or a sea dragon or a dark desert creature or the king of death in the grave. He's also given many titles like tempter or the evil one or the devil, which in Greek means the slanderer. But his name is Satan, right? Actually, no. Satan is not a name. It's another one of these titles, which is why in Hebrew it has the word the in front of it. The Satan means the adversary because he isn't for anything. Rather, he's anti-everything working through lies to drag us back into darkness and disorder. That's intense. Now, what about these other spiritual rebels in the Bible called demons? What are they all about? Okay, so remember the concept of God's heavenly staff team, the divine council, or the sons of God. In the Hebrew scriptures, we're told that some of these rebelled too. When did that happen? Multiple times, actually. After the snake comes the rebellion of the sons of God in Genesis 6. We're told that they have sex with women who then give birth to violent warrior giants. Oh, right. The Nephilim. These are probably the strangest characters in the whole Bible. Well, strange from your point of view. But ancient readers knew exactly what was going on. The ancient kingdoms around Israel claimed to be founded and protected by giant warrior kings who were part human, part God, and filled with divine wisdom. 
Ah, I see. So the biblical authors are saying, hey, those warrior kings, they shouldn't be honored. Right. In this story, they're portrayed as human rebels who are captive to spiritual evil, spreading their violence in God's good world. Yeah, and one of those kings in Genesis 10 goes on to build the city of Babylon. Yes, Nimrod, whose name sounds like the Hebrew word for rebel. And his kingdom leads to the next rebellion where humans exalt themselves in Babylon. But God scatters that rebellion. And when Moses in Deuteronomy looks back at that story, he says that's the moment when God handed over the nations to worship the rebel host of heaven, the gods of money, sex, and military power. Moses is the first one to call them demons, that is, lesser spiritual beings. So demons are spiritual forces at work behind corrupt human power structures. Yes, but in the Bible, they also work on the personal level, animating and exploiting humanity's greed and selfishness, as well as the weakness of our mortal bodies. In the Bible, spiritual evil is at work in anything that drags God's good creation back into chaos, darkness, and death. So this is why when Jesus arrives on the scene, he said his primary enemy is not human. Right. Jesus and his first followers viewed all the pain and suffering in God's good world as a sign of its captivity to death and spiritual evil. But they didn't think this was the end of the story. Right. Jesus knew that the only way out of this cosmic ruin is to overcome evil and death itself, even if it costs him everything. your paradigms being shifted. I want to encourage you. There's a series called Spiritual Beings on Bible Project. Go and listen to all five of them. It'll give you more context because everything that we've just seen now is imperative that we gain understanding and knowledge about who we face in this world of the war that we've been birthed into when we come to a place of salvation. So I'm not going to go into all of the details of that. What I am going to do though is I'm going to look at 1 John 3 verse 8 says, the one who does what is sinful is the devil. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So Satan bears the primary responsibility for the evilness and wickedness in this world. But actually as human beings, in terms of the pain and suffering, we could actually avoid it if we came under the authority and power of who God is, rather than allowing the wickedness of Satan to pervade. And... The reality is what Satan does is he deceives us and he prevents us from making that kind of connection with God that Sherry spoke of earlier, which actually helps us deal with the effects of sin and deal with the effects of this worldly system that takes us into a place of death and disorder. Now, when Satan deceived Adam and Eve, what's interesting is how quickly it spiraled down to this place in Noah, with Noah in Genesis chapter 6, where you start to see how God even says, I'm sorry, I, I, I'm grieving that I've made humanity. Here's the text. It says, whoops. It says, the Lord saw the great wickedness of the human race that had become, that had become on earth and that every inclination, see that again, the mind, the thoughts, the inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. Oh my gosh. Imagine the creator of the universe actually being sorry that he's actually made us. 
Because remember that in the whole context of human wickedness, if you see that text, God's not worried about, in a sense, he's not looking at our actions. He's looking at what causes our actions. He's looking about our thoughts, our intentions that lead to the actions of wickedness and evil in this world. And that's why he says to us, keep your hearts with all diligence, because out of it springs the issues of life. So everything starts within the heart, and the heart and the mind are synonymous in the context of the Bible, because our minds and everything we think about starts to impact who we are, and that's what we act out of. And so that's why God is saying, look after your heart, guys. Just before the meeting uh, and the prayer meeting this morning, what uh, Willem spoke about was the parable of the sower. And are our hearts fertile enough to hear the word of God so that it will grow, or do we allow the cares of the world to strangle it? Does it land on a hard heart where we just push it aside? Are we ready to hear what God has to say for us? So when we consider this this thing of human wickedness, we need to protect our hearts because our very lives depend on it. Our thoughts is actually Satan's trading ground. And it's important for us to understand that Satan works through deception. Jesus called him the father of lies. You know, he's like a politician. How do you know when a politician's lying? His lips are moving. Same thing with Satan. But he uses those images, those ideas, those belief systems to infiltrate our thoughts. And he pulls us away from our connection with God. And do you know that you cannot be forced to do evil? You can't even be forced to do good. But what he does do is he starts to persuade us to get our actions to go in a certain way. You know, Hansi Cronier said, the devil made me do it. And I know he's passed away now. No, Hansi, the devil didn't make you do it. You allowed the enemy to infiltrate your heart with images and ideas, and that's why you acted the way you did. The devil doesn't make us do anything. We choose to do it. And it's like this, um, the, the, the imagery is, if we are to be Satan's puppets, it's the, the strings or his lies that he makes us, not makes us, but he, we choose to allow him through the lies that we believe to act out what he wants. Now, when we consider Satan's temptations or Satan's deception is used, he uses temptation to do that. And it's used to oppose God. And it's used to derail our experience of the sufficiency, the all-sufficiency, the limitless sufficiency of who God is. So if we look at this text that says, do not love the world or anything in the world. Now remember, the world here is not, is not God's created world. It's a, it's a worldly system that Satan has put in place to infiltrate us with those ideas and those images and all of those things. And so it's the cultural and social practices around our world today that we find ourselves as we live in this world. And it opposes God. Okay, so it says here, if anyone loves the world, sorry, if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life comes from the far, from, not from the Father, but from the world. And obviously he's talking about Satan. So when we look at the three deceptions of temptation or the three spiritual dynamics which in this John 1, we see it's the lust of the flesh. Now, how many have ever struggled with the lust of the flesh? Okay, I'm a guy, so I know that there's certain things that I really struggle with, and most guys I've spoken to do, and it's, your, it's all the woman's fault for looking so beautiful. It's called blame shifting. I'm just following my father, Adam. Um, or I, I really love lemon meringue pie, especially the one Louise makes, and when she puts it there, it doesn't last a day in our house. Um, it normally tastes better on the second day, but we never get to it. Um, what about the lust of the eyes? Because you, you, you see this thing and you, you, you really enjoy it. And so you, 
you want to go and you want to take it because your eyes pop. Oh, there, that looks nice. Let me follow that. Or the pride of life. Well, I'm great and I'm going to show everybody that I'm great. So I'm going to not do what I'm responsible for my family, but I'm going to go and make money and become a big deal and become whatever it might be. But actually, I'm not taking the responsibility that God has put in place for my legacy. What about Genesis 3 verse 6 where this is where Adam and Eve were deceived in the temptations of Satan? Look at this. The woman saw the fruit of the tree. It was good and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. And so she took some of it and ate it. Look at how that maps out. The lust of the flesh, the good for food, the lust of the eyes, the pleasing to the eye, the pride of life. Oh, this will make me wise. This will make me like God, so let me go and do this. What about the temptations of Jesus? And I'm not going to go through it. It'll take too long. We'll be here all morning. But in Luke chapter 3, Jesus is tempted, and it says that God led him into the desert so that the devil could tempt him. You think, well, why would God do that? Well, because Jesus was going to overcome the devil. Where? In the realm of the mind, in the realm of temptation, in the realm of ideas, belief systems, and images. Why? Because he says to Jesus, oh, if you're hungry, turn those stones into bread. And Jesus responds, and I'm going to get into that moment. Or what about desire to look good? Because this is an interesting one, because the reality is, if looking good precedes or has precedence out of knowing the good, then Satan's won half the battle. Let me say that again. When looking good takes precedence over knowing the good, Satan has won half the battle. Why? Because if Jesus would have gone up into the temple and thrown down and he would have just like floated down and he would have gone, oh, look at Jesus, he's amazing. He was tempting Jesus to display his miraculous power and within his deity to be able to say, hey, look at me, I'm great. And we have that across Christendom too, don't we? I mean, if Alexander Fenter was here, and I can't do an Alexander Fenter, but you know, where he talks about the man of God, you know, and, and these pastors who stand up and become, and how many of them have fallen over this last little while? I promise you for me, I go there, but for the grace of God, go I. So I don't judge them as far as that's concerned. But the point is, let's not put ourselves up and put people on pedestals. Please, pedestals, please don't put me on a pedestal. Just go and speak to Louise. She'll bring you down, tell, tell you all about who I am. She can bring, bring me right down to Project Planet Earth where my feet need to be. But we need to know our enemy. We need to know his strategy. We need to know that we're in a battle. Because if we don't understand all of this, then we land up with a place where our egos start to take over. Here's the kingdom of the world. Here, go and do this. And this is the ploy of the enemy to take us away from what God wants. So Satan's temptations, what he wants us to do is he wants to obsess or get us to obsess over the immediate. How many of us go, oh, I like that, I want that. And now we do everything to get that. I do that with my kids. Just, whoa, hold the bus. I remember, um, and I'm going to use Dale as an example, which has come to mind, is he wanted to buy a car. A car. So he was driving my old skadonk and uh, my little kind of 30-year-old uh, Toyota Corolla and a uh, great little car. But uh, he wants to buy his own car now, and he finds this car, and it's like the best car. I, don't, I can't remember what it was, an Opal something or other, or it was a uh, Hyundai or something like that. And I was going, Dale, it's overpriced. I even went with the guy, and I told the guy, it's overpriced. I've looked at the, not, whatever, no, it's brilliant. No, I want this car. I said, Dale, wait. And what happens? He got the perfect car. But when we see something, we want it. We want it now. You know, I mean, right? It's the queen anthem. I want it all, and I want it now. Where's Freddie Mercury right now? I trust that he encountered Jesus before he passed away. 
But actually, you look at his life, and if you've watched the movie about his life, the debauchery that he found himself in. Talk about living in a life of lack because he wasn't linked under Jesus and all of what Jesus would bring. So when we look at this, when we understand that um, Satan's temptations with all of this, is he's going to say, don't worry, Gary, it's going to be all right. If you go and you, you, you know, snuggle inside that colleague of yours at, at work, it's going to be okay. Don't worry. Don't worry about the consequences. You know, if you land up, you know, in adulterous affair, don't worry about it. You know, it's, it's all cool. You know, don't worry. Be happy. As long as it makes you happy, that's the world system today, isn't it? I mean, all of this, what happens is, is Satan also uses the fears behind all of that. Oh, I, I won't have enough. Or maybe there's physical harm that would come to me. Or if I don't get that, or if I don't do all of these things, and I'm going to be afraid of what other people will do to me. So I gate myself in, and I don't engage people. Not just, I'm not just talking physically, but I'm talking emotionally, because we get hurt by others. So now the fear dominates how we live our lives, and we don't make connections. But what we do is we break relationship, because it's much easier. And then we just start the process again. We, we, again, not in my notes, but I feel to say this. It's like we did uh, marriage counseling. We've actually two couples here that we do marriage counseling with. And uh, one of the things that we've seen and that we've, we've, we've learned is that what happens when people get married, they realize, okay, sure, this is, this is different. Now you're living with each other and the toothpaste gets squeezed on the wrong side and the, the, the toilet paper doesn't, you know, I've heard a good one. Toilet paper's beards, not mullets. Remember that. Mullets are not cool. Beards are cool. Um, and uh, I'm just being silly around some of those things, but not really. And, uh, and then, well, <laughs> then what happens is, is you know, you struggle, and, you, and it takes seven to ten years for a couple to actually settle who they are and who they are with one another. That's why that whole seven-year itch in terms of, of marriages and people getting divorced. But you know what happens is why are uh, second and third marriages more likely to fail? Because they just start the process again. And then they get to five, six years, and they think, oh, I'm still the same. I'll get divorced. And, I, and they just carry on. That's why you see marriages three, four, five, six times, because they don't deal with their stuff, and they don't process through this process and understand that actually it's about me opening my heart up and building intimacy with this other person and not being scared of what they will see in me, that there will be an acceptance and a love, etc. So all of these things motivate our actions. But those actions can cause harm if we are doing it out of fear and lack and out of darkness and disorder rather than out of light and love and all of what Sherry shared with us right in the beginning. The thing is, is we don't experience the life of more than enough unless we are connected to God, unless we understand that we need to deal with these fears. We need to deal with these temptations, with the deception of this enemy called Satan. And uh, if we don't, then it just reveals our lack of trust in who God is, and all his all-sufficiency. So, my question would be, how do we deal with this adversary? How do we deal with Satan? How do we deal with these works and effects in our lives? So let's look at this thing. Number one, I'm going to tell you, it's beyond your ability and capability. You cannot. It's what Sherry said earlier. We do not have it within us. Remember, our, we are created, we are the one created being where, where God infused his spirit into us, we cannot attain the good works God's called us, called us to do in advance without being powered by him. It is not possible. That's why I've got that, that little adage where I say, if your future doesn't scare you, it's not God's future that he has for you. Because if you can do it in your own strength, it's not God's calling for your life. You need 
God to be able to come alongside you and to empower you. So the point is, is we need to understand and believe that actually Satan is real, that he is at work in our lives and the works of others, and the lives of others, that he's here to destroy the good that God's created, and he's here to destroy you because you are one of the good things God created. And then he's here, if you can't do that, then he's going to pull you off doing the good works that he's called you to do, because if he can stop you doing that, then he stops you from adding good into this world, and evilness and wickedness continue to grow, rather than the good that God has created. So how did Jesus deal with this? What did he do when Satan came with his temptation and deception? He said, it is written. He used the word of God against Satan. Isn't it interesting that Satan never argued or debated? It's like, oh, okay, you got me. Oop, oh, yeah, you got me again. Oh, you got... Then what did he do? He went away for a more opportune time, and we'll get, I'm sure there were other times, but we'll get to that in a moment. But in terms of all of this, what does Satan want to do? He wants to drag us back into darkness, disorder, fear, and death. The very thing that Jesus came to deal with and to overcome. So we are to use the word of God to nourish our souls. Now, I'm not trying to create guilt and condemnation here. But how many of us have saturated ourselves in the word of God this week? Don't put your hands up. But I would probably think there's a majority of you have not just sat under God's word, with God's word, allowing it to wash over us allowing us to put the truth of God, to hold up the trueness of who God is before us, to allow to filter in and deal with the lies of the enemy through the images, belief systems, and ideas that dominate our thinking in the world in which we live. That's what David says. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. When we start to allow the word of God to flood over us, that we gaze upon the word, that we allow it to wash through us. It's almost like a scalpel that God uses because that's why Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is alive and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. So when we come and we, we allow the waterfall of God's word to cascade over us, it's like the Holy Spirit takes a scalpel and all the cancer in my heart and my mind and my thoughts, he takes it out. And I start to live in a, a life that is more than enough, despite the circumstances that I find myself in. So, how do we deal with evil? Because this is not a helpful thing. Remember, the primary target of Satan is the knowledge of the goodness of God in our lives. If he can get us to a place by going, God, why didn't you? Why not? You know, what have you done? Then what, what happened? Then all of a sudden, God becomes not good, and Satan gets away scot-free. But he's the one who's brought the wickedness into this world. He's the one who's brought the lack, the disorder, the death into this world. God has only brought the goodness. So his whole task is to get into our minds. And you know, some people say, well, just empty your minds. Now, please don't do that. I mean, I know some of you live your life like that, but please stop it. <laughs> Don't fill it with the things of God. Don't fill it with the things of the enemy. If you enter your mind and say, well, I just won't think of anything, he'll get in there. If you're not thinking of the truth of God, then the lies of the enemy start to infiltrate. And that's what happened in Noah, in the days of Noah. Every intent of their thoughts, of their heart, was evil continually, it says, which I read a few moments ago. So, unfortunately, humanity has made it a really easy task for the enemy to have a playground, isn't it? Because we don't read his word. We don't allow it to flood over us. We don't allow, whether you're listening to his word, whether you're listening to somebody preach his word, there are so many ways in which we can allow God to come. If you, I mean, I'm not a great reader. I've never been a great reader. Like, 
for me, like studying when I have to read is like, ugh. But when I listen, I listen really well. Not like my wife. She doesn't listen well. She reads well. That's why I have to write her notes instead of talking to her. Because I call her up on the phone. I say, babe, won't you go to the whatever and pick this up for me? Yes, put the phone down. I come home. Did you get it? Oh, no. It's gone by the time she puts it down. So if I write her notes, it's much better. Because when she reads, she retains. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This is another point. How do we fight this evil? The weapons we fight with are not weapons of this world. It's not gossip and slander and pointing fingers and getting upset and all that kind of stuff. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds, to demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Again, can you see this whole process that, that we are being taught is to take captive all of the stuff and say, hold on a second, does, does this speak of the goodness of God and the good works he's called me to? In? No, it doesn't. Then throw it away. Bring it into obedience. Take it captive. Push it away. Because these strongholds, these arguments, these pretensions that exalt themselves above Christ, they are against the knowledge of God. And this is the citadel of Satan. Not the citadel that, that Ian works for. Citadel means fortress. It's the fortress. I know there might be some devils in your citadel, but, but we're not talking about that. I suppose there's one in every company. But the point is, is, this is the citadel of Satan. He comes in and he does his thing in your minds. And he gets you to think and have ideas that are contrary to the way God wants us to live. And that's why in this whole process is the gospel is what smashes all of this. Because when we understand who Jesus is and what he, why he came to Project Planet Earth, and we understand that he came to destroy the works of the enemy, to come and destroy Satan and his works and effects and death itself, we'll see in Revelation that he throws Satan and death into the lake of fire to be tormented forever. So he says to Timothy, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everybody able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed. Hmm. Just go on Facebook today. Is that happening? In the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge and truth, or of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Remember, how does he take them captive? In their minds. So that their thoughts, their ideas, their images, their belief systems are about what he wants. That influences their actions. And they start to live a life without God, without connection with God, under what the enemy wants. And they perpetuate wickedness, no, not goodness. See, in some way it's sixth sense, isn't it? It's like so obvious. But that's what he does. So how do we take these cap- thoughts, how do we take captive our thoughts within this whole thing, if this is the citadel of Satan. Think about God as Jesus did. Trust God as Jesus trusts. And Rich in our prayer meeting brought across this point, that we move from faith in Jesus to having the faith of Jesus. When we start to do that, that's real faith. And we're going to get into some of that a bit later. But that leads us into a life that is way more than enough, that doesn't have lack. Now, John 14, you know, talks about the fact that Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he's saying, look, the enemy's coming to get me, but he doesn't have a hold on me. 
see, Jesus' victory was not without struggle. He sweated blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, didn't he? So he's on this, in this approach to going off to the Garden of Gethsemane. What do you think is happening? Do you think Jesus is afraid to die? Do you think that the anxiety that, that caused the corpuscles in his skin to break, to bleed, was because he was afraid of death? Nowhere in Scripture does it say that. Find me a Scripture that says that. Why do you think he was under the anxiety? Because Satan was trying his last ditch attempt to come into his mind to change his thinking so that he would not go to the cross and bring redemption to humanity. So Jesus has done that for us. He's overcome Satan. In the Garden of Gethsemane was Satan's last-ditch attempt to stop him from providing this redemption that we and taking us from the grasp of the evil and the disorder and the lack that we face in our world today. And as I said, he wasn't afraid to die. And what's brilliant about it was Satan then says, okay, I can't do this, so let me then torture him as much as possible. And without going through that, if you want to understand what Jesus went through, it's almost humanly impossible that he landed up on the cross alive. But he goes through that torture. Why? Because he wanted to torture him so that he would change his mind, that he would follow Satan. But he chose not to, and he went to the cross, and he's done that for us, and if he can do that, so can we. And in all of this, Satan was unsuccessful. So guess where he comes? Guess where his focus is right now? Is you and me. Because we are Jesus' followers. He can't get to Jesus. He can't get to God. But what he's going to do is he's going to come after us. And he's going to try and hurt us. And he's going to try and take us off track. He's going to try and pull us out of the plan that God has for our lives. Because if he can distract us and he can take us away from those things and not do the good works that he's prepared in advance for us to do, then at least he wins some form of the battle because he knows that his end is coming. We cannot overcome Satan simply within ourselves to try and change our own belief systems and whatever else. We need the word of God to come. Because it will rob ourselves from the life without lack, the life that is more than enough. We need the connection with Jesus because the power comes from him. We need to keep our minds on who God truly is, not on who we want God to be. God is not this fluffy sugar daddy. God is the creator of this universe. Jesus is not this anemic, effeminate, little wimpy man that these pictures show him out to be. Jesus was a lumberjack. He cut down his own trees. He has a tattoo on his thigh, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He is coming back with fire in his eyes. He is not somebody to be fooled with. That's my Jesus. And when we come, we understand that the battle, the battle is for your hearts, through your minds, through what you think, through the images and the belief systems and the ideas that infiltrate our hearts every single day on social media, on the news front and all of those things. And it's only the gospel that will take back the control that Satan has to reclaim our minds and our hearts of every human being who's been deceived by this punk Hasatan. And if we understand his strategy and we understand what he's going to do, we understand that Jesus has done it for us and we can walk in his ways. So what are we called to do? We are called to do good in God's good creation that our good God created for us. And I want to say let's walk in those good works that God's prepared in advance for us to do. Let's not stand back. Let's look at those opportunities, like Sherry was saying earlier, to do good in all of it. And I love what she brought with the wisdom of the salt that God has given us to be the salt and the light of God's presence and the lightness 
of his presence. That we go into our workplaces, we, the way we deal with the shop attendants and the petrol attendants and all of those kind of things. Now, last slide. This wasn't in my notes, but um, it's not working. Is when I st- shared my, um, my, uh, my preach uh, to a number of people, Anthony said to me, he felt this morning was that what God was going to do was he was going to cut certain anchors that were holding people back in their mindsets, but he was also going to anchor you in the truth of who God is. And I don't know, is there anything that has spoken to you this morning where you go, it doesn't matter which one, but, but can I ask you for a response this morning? Not for me. I don't need you to respond. Be helpful because, you know, I am insecure, but I don't say that funnily. I am, just like all of you are. But it's not about my security here. It's my, or, or my insecurity. It's about the fact that I'm asking you, is there anything this morning that you feel you need to let go of in your life? I know I have one, okay? So why don't you just, wait, wait, before you don't stand yet. And, and are there others who feel like, hey, I've got something that I can just anchor myself in for this weekend and the months to come?